Hello and welcome to Indefensible Inc., the podcast that takes a closer look at some allegedly terrible comics and comics-related media. By analyzing what makes bad comics so bad, we hope to better understand what makes good comics so good. Broadcasting from Wisconsin's very own Great Lakes Avengers headquarters, I'm your host, Justin Zyduck. Today's topic is actually a request uh, from somebody who reached out, who I'm to identify as Henry, to cover two storylines from the Marvel Knights Captain America relaunch of 2002, The Extremist and Ice. For the sake of merciful brevity, I'll mostly concentrate on Ice, as that was the main controversy magnet of the two, but we'll hit The Extremist and the rest of the Marvel Knights cap book from the time on the way. Ice ran in Captain America, Volume 4, number 12 to 16 in 2003, so we're just shy on 20 years there. Um, it's got art by Jay Lee, who was coming off some high-profile and acclaimed Marvel Knights work at the time, uh, The Inhumans and The Century with Paul Jenkins, and Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four, with Grant Morrison. And it's written by John Nay Reber and Chuck Austin, although, as we'll get into in a minute, that's kind of a complicated writing credit. The reason Ice is so controversial is, um, well, uh, everybody knows that an accident caused Captain America to spend decades in suspended animation after World War II. What this book presupposes is, maybe the U.S. government froze him on purpose? So yeah, this is your uh, standard hero learns secrets from his past, everything you know is wrong kind of story, which usually riles fans up, and this was no exception. Henry was good enough to write out some of his thoughts on the storyline, which I'll share some choice selections from up front. He says, First off, it's really f***ed up. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll probably, uh, probably bleep that. I think its greatest sin is depicting Cap as a total idiot. There is one series of panels where he looks at his shield and starts going, why can't things be simple anymore? Why can't I punch a guy and be right? Why can't things be simple like they used to be? Austin really wants to have a Manchurian candidate, Jason Bourne, MK Ultra vibe going on with Cap, getting frozen and being given false memories. I can't tell if they kill or freeze Bucky. If you found out the government of the country you are partially named after did that to you, there would be no coming back from that. And uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's a fair a fair assessment, um, and that is the sort of response that Ice provokes in fans like us. But before we get into the story, let's history this up a bit for some of that sweet sweet context. The ongoing Captain America series was canceled in December of two thousand one and relaunched in April two thousand two. That would be the third Captain America number one in under a decade after the Heroes Reborn and Heroes Return relaunches of the uh, mid nineties. Um, thank goodness we're not so cavalier about remembering these days, right? Uh, but the new Volume 4 was launched under the Marvel Knights banner, which at the time was sort of a prestige label that communicated, you know, we're going to do something different with this. To that end, a bunch of writers were asked for pitches. Uh, Marvel was allegedly going after big-name creators like Greg Rucka and Frank Miller. So whatever we think of the series as it came out, uh, perhaps a bullet was dodged. Um, but John Nay Reber perhaps uh, best known as a writer on DC Vertigo's Books of Magic, says he just sort of happened to be in the right place at the right time with the Marvel Knights editor at the time, uh, Stuart Moore, that he was invited to pitch and got the gig. Now, if you look at the dates, uh, old series canceled in December 2001, the new one starting in April 2002, naturally you would assume this high-profile relaunch was sort of a direct response to the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001. But the relaunch was actually announced just beforehand, in the summer of 2001. It was just a total and grim coincidence that a series called Captain America would get this sort of unexpected additional resonance and 
sense of importance spitting out of a tragedy. The events of that day did end up impacting the series, though. Uh, the first arc that Reaver had planned had to be rewritten and readjusted and got moved to the second storyline, with the new one being written as a direct response. Ice was apparently supposed to be a separate miniseries, also written by Reber, but then got folded in as the third story arc. He seemed to be writing both concurrently and then left while the storylines were in progress, and Chuck Austin, who had also pitched for the series, was brought in to replace him on both storylines. Reber describes it like this. Probably the simplest way that I can describe what happened is that Joe Quesada, who was editor-in-chief of Marvel at the time, has a very clear vision about what he wants Cap to be, and my Cap just wasn't quite what he was looking for. They liked a lot of my ideas, but some of the approaches that I had to storytelling and structuring things and weighting of the character just wasn't meshing with his vision. In the end, I was doing lots and lots of rewrites of scripts, and it was slowing things down. We all reached a place where we realized that it might be better if someone else was doing the book. I guess that's the long way of saying that we had creative differences. So this makes for some very difficult to parse writing credits. Um, I don't have the original issues, and wikis and other sources sometimes have conflicting credits. Uh, the trade paperback that I got my hands on for this um, doesn't break down the credits by plot or script. It's just a with credit, Chuck Austin with John Nay Reber, which could mean anything, right? So I'll just say that as near as I can tell and can see that this is probably not even 100% accurate. Uh, parts 1 through 3 of The Extremist are written by Reber. Parts 4 and 5 are written by Austin, based on an idea by Reber. Then Reber appears to come back with a plot credit for Part 1 of Ice, which Austin then scripts, and then Reber leaves for good and Austin finishes the story solo. Uh, everybody got that? So God only knows who is responsible for what aspects of the story. Um, it's possible that we could get Austin and Reber and Stuart Moore and possibly Quesada all into a room to hash this out and still disagree about who contributed what. So it's tempting in fan circles to shovel everything bad onto Chuck Austin because everybody hated his run on Uncanny X-Men around the same time. Uh, you can check out our episode on the Draco from 2020 for more about uh, his whole deal. Uh, in Henry's email to me, he says about the changeover from Reaver to Austin in The Extremist, If half of Robocop was directed by Paul Verhoeven and half was directed by Michael Bay, You'd notice even if you weren't informed of it. <laughs> Which, uh, uh, fair enough. Um, there is a really juvenile simile involving an inexpensive stripper that seems to signal the arrival of Austin's scripting in uh, The Extremist. Um, but I'm going to avoid shaking my fist saying Austin at, uh, at everything because some of these ideas probably do come from Reber in some way. Um, listening to Reber's statement earlier, it seems to suggest that some of the larger plot ideas are more him and the mechanics of how they were, the story was told are Austin's, but you know, it's without looking at the scripts, who can, who can say, right? So with that in mind, let's take a brief look at what's been going on in this volume of Captain America so far. The initial arcs in this volume have dealt with the repercussions of what you might call the sins of America. Uh, sort of a questioning view of the assumption of American moral superiority that Captain America has at times perhaps embodied. Um, the first arc involves terrorists who take over a middle American town, which Cap is eventually able to trace back to a manipulator enacting revenge for an atrocity that he lived through. Um, and the atrocity and where the villain is actually from is not specified. In fact, the villain brings up the point that America has participated in so many atrocities that Cap wouldn't be able to narrow it down just from a, from a vague description. The second arc involves a former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent named Redpath, who can control the weather. 
he's Native American and bears a grudge against the U.S. government for the treatment of indigenous people. Along the way, Redpath doses Cap with some sort of hallucinogen, which Redpath is intending will give Cap visions that will help him understand the righteousness of his cause. Um, instead, Cap mostly hallucinates that ordinary people are Captain America villains, and he punches them and feels bad about it. Um, so it was sort of a weird plan on Redpath's part. And again, I don't know if this is more Austin or uh, Reaver in how this is coming off, but like, if you could control hallucinations in somebody else, that would sort of make sense. But if you just drug somebody and sort of hope that what they happen to hallucinate while they're tripping is uh, something that makes them sympathetic, I don't know if that's a, that's kind of a, a long shot. Um, it's like, so you're coming out of it. Uh, did you experience a deeper spiritual understanding of my perspective? And Cap is like, nah, man, I just put on Odyssey and Oracle by the zombies and just had a, had a great time. It's... Um, so, yeah, but while uh, Cap is going on his voyage to Trip Out City, he has a vision of himself with a shaved head and being placed into some sort of mystery tube by scientists talking about memory implants. Um, the implication being that the explanation for how Cap survived World War II that we were given way back in Avengers number 4, that Captain America and Bucky had been on a mission against Baron Zemo, um, an explosion separated them, and then Cap plunged into the English Channel and gets frozen, that... That was all a lie that he was just sort of programmed to believe. Cap comes out of his hallucination eventually and gets help from Thor to save the day from a massive storm, but he's left with these unanswered questions, which sets us up for ice. Folks, this is not the story that I assumed we'd be getting from this description. Um, so if I just told you the elevator pitch for this arc, that Captain America discovers that he was intentionally put on ice by the government, how would you assume that that story goes? You might think, okay, Cap has what seems like recovered memories of scientists freezing him and planting simulated scenarios in his brain. Um, he can't be sure if it's true or not, so he goes out and investigates those suspicions. He's probably questioning people in the government and S.H.I.E.L.D. and other superheroes, uh, you probably meet some shadowy new characters who either try to stop him or give him clues to spur him on. There'd be plenty of opportunities for confrontations and ideological conflicts and battles as he gradually uncovers this conspiracy and follows it all the way to the top, where ultimately he'd confront the parties responsible and arrived at either a uh, satisfying conclusion or even a tease for future mysteries, but with some sort of uh, measure of closure. Right. Like, you can write that in your head, almost. And the reason that you can do that is that's sort of a Wolverine story. Like, particularly the memory implants uh, are a specific thing that really came up in a lot of 90s storylines, which is maybe its own problem in that it feels like maybe trying to juice Captain America up by horning in on some X-Men territory. Um, but if you are going to take a page out of the Wolverine book, if you are going to do the character investigates the mystery of their origins type of storyline, you would expect that the story is mostly going to be about that or doing that. But that's not really what we get. Um, Ice starts out with, pretty much out of the blue, somebody anonymously mails him film of the scientist freezing him and official government documentation about this plan, proving pretty definitively that, yes, this, this did happen. Uh, and in case you have any lingering suspicion that the evidence is fake and meant to just sort of mess with his cap's head, uh, and the story does bring this up as a possibility that, like, maybe this is a fake-out, um, we get a flashback from the third party that verifies it pretty much right away. So, it's confirmed. 
right? Uh, Cap doesn't have to trace clues or whatever, and all the dramatic business of the storyline is taken care of. The evidence just literally shows up at his front door and confirms his suspicions. So, that about wraps it up for today. Thanks for listening. As always, uh, email me at indefensibleinc at gmail. Oh, wait, hold on. There's four more issues to the story, I see. So we'll get back to that confirming flashback in a bit. But um, as the story goes on, Cap is watching the film evidence, seeing himself being put under, basically crying into a flag, when his new love interest busts into the apartment to check on him. So when you think of the love interest in Captain America's life, you think of Sharon Carter, of Bernie Rosenthal, maybe Diamondback for you uh, for you grew heads out there. And of course, you think of Hana, an amphibious warrior from the undersea kingdom of Lemuria. Don't you? <laughs> She's introduced in the last chapters of the previous arc, The Extremist. Cap is at one point drowning in the ocean, and out of nowhere she swims up and gives him oxygen and rescues him. And then just sort of tags along for the remainder of the story. Um, she doesn't really account for why she's there, and even though Cap is naturally suspicious of this mystery woman who just sort of showed up at the right time out of nowhere, he doesn't push back very hard. She's just sort of along so that she can be in the next storyline, I guess. Which brings us back to Ice. So this Hana, uh, and she has pointed ears and Caucasian skin and can breathe on air and underwater, much like uh, Namor the Submariner, Prince of Atlantis. I don't know why she's from Lemuria instead of Atlantis. Um, she draws a distinction between the two, as she has every right to, of course. But I'm not sure, from a storytelling perspective, why you would make that choice to make her from the lesser-known of the two amphibious people in the Marvel Universe. Um, it's also not clear why she can breathe air, because other Lemurians that we see in the story um, need helmets with water in them. But moving on, Hana claims to be in love with him, but... Uh, this causes her a great deal of anguish because she knows that he doesn't love her back. And at that moment, a pack of female assassins, who are also the Murians, but they have these kind of weird, um, like, porcelain kind of mask-looking things, attack them in the apartment. Cap and Hana defeat them and just kind of leave them there. Like, they're unconscious, and then they leave the apartment. Or maybe Hana mentions that at one point they're wearing, wearing teleportation devices, so maybe they escape off-panel and we just don't see it. Um, the storytelling is not great here in terms of clarity and what is literally supposed to be happening on the page. When I was done with this arc, I actually went back to read a synopsis um, just to make sure that I was following what had supposedly happened. Maybe there's gaps in the scripting that the art isn't filling in or gaps in the art that the scripting is trying and failing to fill in. Um, I quite like Jay Lee as an artist, um, and he brings this very delicate and ethereal style of art to this arc. Um, he's not necessarily who I would think of to do a cap arc, just because you think of Captain America being very solid and, you know, square jaws and square fists. Lee's sense of a kind of beautiful alien design works very nicely for the bits in Lemuria that we'll uh, see coming up in a bit, but I think this arc could have really used somebody with a more grounded sense of storytelling because there's a lot of stuff that isn't clear. There's a lot of impressionistic paint splatter backgrounds at times where I think it would be more helpful to just sort of see where the characters are in a space. And um, and considering how much of the story is actually Captain America going through some very dark moods, I think that an artist who does more acting with the characters' faces might have been preferable. John Cassidy, who draws the opening arc to this volume, might have worked a little bit better to communicate the emotions, I think. But what's done is done. Uh... Hana urges Cap to forget what was done in the past and move on, but he needs closure on this. So he resolves to talk to General Phillips, who was involved in the original Super Soldier program. Aha! 
So I suppose that Cap drags the truth out of him. Uh, not really. They visit the Veterans Hospital, where he's currently staying, because if he was a general already in World War II, by 2001 or 2002, he'd be pretty aged. Uh, the general sort of narrates a flashback for us, the reader. Um, maybe it's also narrated for Cap. It's hard to hard to say. Um, again, storytelling sort of breaks down in this arc. We see Steve Rogers trying to enlist and getting rejected. And you know how great this is in the uh, the first Avenger movie? where he gets picked for the super soldier program because of that great answer about, you know, he doesn't want to kill anybody. He just doesn't like bullies. Um, we don't really get that here. We get more of a Steve just sort of yelling, I want to fight for my country. And who are you to tell me that I can't die to defend my, my country? Um, and that sort of thing. So there is sort of an interesting twist here that you could pick up on that Phillips apparently doesn't pick Steve because of his outstanding moral character. Like we get in the MCU. He just seems uh, so blindly patriotic that Phillips assumes Steve will do whatever they tell him to do. But as the war progresses and Cap refuses to kill, Phillips is afraid that Cap is sort of out of their control, um, particularly that he will object to and possibly try to stop the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So the general recommends to the uh, highest echelons of the U.S. government, including possibly the president, freezing Captain America to take him out as a threat, which is apparently the plan that they go with. So at this point, you're wondering, why bother? Why, if you want to get rid of Captain America, why not just kill him? Uh, Cap himself speculates that maybe they tried to, and the general points out that uh, Captain America is such this, you know, such an unstoppable opponent. And like, okay, like, I see, like, if you try to assassinate him, you know, you fail. We, you, we see that with the Lemurians, that you can't just, like, jump Captain America, and that's going to go well. But they do apparently get their hands on Captain America, Somehow that they're able to subject him to this freezing process and shave his hair and plug new memories into his brain. So, like, they, they got him. You know, like, they they got him. Uh, we don't see how, of course, because that's uh, that would be really useful to see in the story. But, like, if they can do that, it's like the bit in Austin Powers of asking, why don't we just shoot him while we got him, you know? Like, freezing was your plan B. But once he's out for the count, like, once you got him in this tube... He's not Wolverine, you know, you can you can shoot him, you can cut his head off, you can drop him in a volcano, whatever you like. <laughs> not to make this the podcast about ways that you can kill an unconscious Captain America, but what's really frustrating is that there are any number of reasons that you could have given to explain why they leave Captain America alive. You can imagine that, like, oh, maybe we'll need Captain America just in case one day in a, you know, apocalyptic emergency scenario. It would be useful to have the super soldier, we bring him out. Uh, maybe they want to study him to recreate the super soldier serum in his blood. Um, even just sort of if it was a squeamishness to do this to Captain America might have been a more acceptable or satisfying explanation. But the general is just like, we'll have some plausible deniability if we don't actually kill him. And that's the last we'll ever see of Captain America. Right, guys? So we, the reader, learn all this. And again, I'm not, I'm not, again, I'm not sure how much of this actually gets relayed to Cap. The general greets him pretty genially, like he's excited to see him. Not at all like the guy who ordered to have him permanently frozen as a potential liability to his country. But whatever he's imparted, the general gets killed by another group of Lemurian assassins, or uh, possibly the same ones if they were teleported away and we just didn't see it. They steal Cap's shield, and Cap pretty much lets them get away without much of a fight. He does say that he's going to go to Lemuria to retrieve his shield, even though he acknowledges that it's probably a trap. So at this point, we're pretty much just operating on the script says this happens next, so it so it does. 
So he and Hannah go to Lemuria, like you do. He has a shield. I guess it's a temporary replacement, but that's not really made clear. Once they get there, there's some more fighting, and they meet the villain of the piece, the guy who has been sending these assassins, and possibly he also mailed the evidence as well. This is a guy called the Interrogator. He exists in this sort of strange metallic shell and a full face mask, and he talks through his his metal hand with sort of a mouth on it. Um, it's a if you see it, it's a <laughs> it's kind of an interesting design. Credit again to Jay Lee for uh, delivering something genuinely odd and affecting. So you're going okay. This must be the guy who froze Cat, right? Like this big villain reveal. This is the guy. No. In a flashback earlier in the storyline, we see his origin as a guy working at whatever government installation they were keeping the uh, the capsicle. He is working for the government and kills another scientist to retrieve this weird mechanical hand that's alien or Atlantean. Um, at the orders of the government, apparently, but that's not really made clear either. Namor shows up randomly in this flashback and busts up that lab. Um, the scientists are apparently trespassing on some sort of sacred Atlantean ground, and Namor accuses the scientists of being Nazis. Which, is that their cover, or are those Nazis? It's not clear. It's so much of the story, is not clear. But uh, Namor finds Cap frozen in ice and busts him out, at which point a disoriented Cap fights Namor. Sort of on automatic mode for a bit, sort of on pure adrenaline instinct to defend this evil scientist guy. There is a fight. Namor cuts the scientist's hand off, and the scientist desperately replaces it with the crazy metal hand that just sort of seems to take over his body and mind. There's a ruckus um, and mass confusion, not just from the storytelling, but a lot of it probably is from the storytelling. And Cap's body drifts out into the ocean, where the Avengers can find him in Avengers number four, if you'll recall from your Marvel history. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense, if you think about it. It certainly doesn't explain what this guy is doing down in Lemuria and how he has these Lemurian assassins who are apparently his daughters. Um, and don't try to reconcile how Namor finds him here versus how the comic in Avengers number four portrays Namor finding him. Um, we're just going we're gonna to roll with it at this point. Just <laughs> Kirby says, don't ask, just buy it. So anyway, this, this crazy robot hand, right? This is really something. Uh, in addition to keeping this interrogator guy alive, it can also shoot this, these tendrils at Captain America. And although it looks like Captain America breaks free, the next issue in a half or so takes place in a simulation or hallucination that the interrogator is both inducing and monitoring. So for the record, the last two story arcs have been about making Captain America hallucinate <laughs> for, for, uh, for vague ends that are frustrated. Anyway, in the simulation... Cap and Hana defeat the interrogator and end up on an island together. Hana makes some, you know, sexual overtures at Cap, saying, "Hey, we're on a desert. Uh, we're on a desert island. There's nobody around. Why are you so repressed? What is his moral objection to uh, any hanky panky going on on this island?" But then the interrogator shows up again and kills her. But Cap still refuses to kill him in return. He later meets up, and this is, again, in the simulation. He then meets up with Sharon Carter, his old flame with S.H.I.E.L.D., and they reignite a relationship. Uh, Cap randomly starts fighting Baron Blood at one point, the vampire, the Nazi vampire, and refuses to kill him as well. Suddenly, Cap and Sharon are married, and she announces over dinner that she's pregnant. But then the interrogator comes back and kills Sharon and the unborn child, and 
Cap still won't kill him in return, even though the interrogator is actually egging him on. Like, come on, why don't you do it? This is the right thing to do is to kill me. At this point, Cap figures out that he's still in Lemuria, and this is some sort of hallucination. Um, I guess the very sudden and abrupt changes are what is tipping him off, but like everything in the story has this sort of non-cause and effect dreamlike logic to it that it's hard to say, what's the straw that breaks Captain America's back here, right? But ultimately, what the interrogator's strange mission has been all this time is to try to figure out how Cap's sense of morality works and why he won't kill. And maybe they could break him so that he would kill? Um, I don't know how that is useful to you if you're a bad guy, unless you actually get Cap to your side first, because then it just means that he's going to kill you. And all the little virtual realities scenarios and Hana pressuring him were kind of tests, I guess. Um, again, in the schema of you want to break Captain America, I don't know what good it does to have a Lemurian lady ask him to have sex, but, um, you know, there are wheels within wheels in these supervillain plans, so I won't interrogate that too hard. Namor shows up in the present, not in the flashback, and reveals that he's known about what's going on this whole time and sent Hana, one of his Praetorian guard, to check up on him. So... <laughs> I have so many questions. I don't know if this means that Hana was lying about being Lemurian and she's actually Atlantean or if she is Lemurian and that's why she's part of the Praetorian Guard or if she was ever actually in love with him or if that was just part of the cover. Why Namor hasn't thought to mention in however long it's been since Cap's been unfrozen about this conspiracy that he stumbled onto and every time that Cap said, oh yeah, I fell into the English Channel and just sort of found me, never brought up the like, oh hey, I found some maybe Nazi scientists or not Nazi scientists, but American scientists pretending to be Nazi scientists. Uh, but nothing involving Namor makes any sense in any way here. Um, nothing involving Hana makes sense in any way in any, any way here. Really, I think that trying to figure out the motivations of any of the underwater dwelling characters in this story is kind of a losing game. They all just have ocean madness. So Cap rips off the interrogator's hand as his, you know, because it's clearly his source of power. And then we learn that A, the interrogator was sent by Del Rusk, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, to try to get Cap to interrogate his moral code and get him to kill. And B, the hand was all that was keeping the interrogator alive, so unintentionally he succeeds in getting Cap to kill because the interrogator dies. And that is how it ends. <laughs> right there, it says, like, the end. Uh, and if it seems to you like there's a lot of hanging threads and follow-up that would naturally arise from the story to be picked up in the next one, you are wrong again, because the next arc of Marvel Knight's Cap is Dave Gibbons and Lee Weeks doing some kind of an alternate reality thing, it looks like, and then when we get to proper continuity again. Robert Morales takes over for a while, then we get Avengers Disassembled, and then another number one with Ed Brubaker and Steve Epting, the run that everybody actually does like. So effectively, nothing in here is really referenced ever again, as far as I can tell. Like, not even to retcon it or explain it away. We just don't talk about ice anymore, I guess. It's a big never mind. Now, to be honest, that's probably the right move, because... I don't know how you would even begin to go about disentangling all of this. It's really a mess on every level. This story is ultimately not really about Cap finding out that he got frozen, because like I say, most of that stuff just sort of happens off front and he gets it confirmed. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense anyway how or why he gets frozen. 
it's a very tell and don't show story, but they don't tell us enough anyway. Uh, you can imagine a lot of scenarios that would be more interesting to actually see play out on the page dramatically, like maybe how the government ends up capturing Cap or maybe a scene in flashback, but actually played out where Cap finds out about the atomic bombs and the plan to bomb Japan and voices his objection to their use. These could be dramatic moments that you could maybe wring something out of, but they're not dramatized in the story. When we see flashbacks at all, they're just sort of passively you know, narrated by a general or somebody, or this guy with a crazy Lemurian robot hand. It doesn't even really explore the implication of what it means to Cap to find out that the government did this to him because, I mean, he feels sad and betrayed, obviously, and, and, and uh, is down in the mouth about that, as you'd, as you'd expect. But there are a bunch of stories where Cap learns something and becomes disenchanted with the American government. That's kind of a go-to Cap thing when you're looking to spice things up, right? And ultimately, it doesn't arguably make a whole lot of difference if he was frozen on accident or on purpose, you know? Like, it's a betrayal, certainly, but he doesn't really get any resolution or catharsis from that. It's just like you have to change his Wikipedia article a little bit to compensate for this. So the story really isn't even about how or why Cap gets frozen. The story is really about this interrogator guy trying to figure out why Cap doesn't kill, which is maybe also a valuable Captain America story to tell, but we don't really even get a good answer on that question. Why doesn't he kill? He just he just doesn't. The interrogator keeps asking him, and he's like, no, I, I don't. I'm just not going to do it. Uh, but then also, he does? Because, <laughs> like, Captain America does kill people from time to time. Like, not indiscriminately, but, like, from time to time, Captain America has been portrayed as killing opponents. Um, there's the question of whether he ever did that in World War II, but putting that aside, even in modern times, there's that time in Mark Greenwald's run where he kills an ultimatum agent who was going to open fire on a crowd. He does chop Baron Blood's head off in a Roger Stern, John Byrne comic, a very good Roger Stern, John Byrne comic. Go out and read, the, go out and read that instead of this one. Uh, which the Baron Blood hallucination that he has even references, but for some reason, Cap just won't do it again in the hallucination with no indication of what, if anything, has changed. He just isn't going to do it. And then if you argue that the point of the story is that Cap does end up killing the interrogator by separating him from his hand life support system or whatever, it's not a very satisfying moral victory to get him in a gotcha like that, you know? Like, he didn't know that this is what's keeping me alive. You've unintentionally killed me. You're a killer. Um, this is some life of David Gale maneuvering here that doesn't really hole up in a satisfying way. There is sort of one interesting idea that I think might be in the storyline, which is what if Steve Rogers, before the super soldier serum, isn't the perfectly virtuous person like he is in Captain America, the first Avenger? What if he signed up because he did just want to, you know, kill Nazis or whatever the line is in the movie and the events of being in the war changed him into the humanist Captain America that we all know and love today? I don't think I personally would like to see that story, but like it would be a story, you know, <laughs> or at least it would be trying to you know, develop a new angle on a character. and um, But this story doesn't even do that. You know, on no level does anything in this story make sense or satisfy the reader emotionally or dramatically. But I don't just want to complain, all evidence to the contrary. Uh, I want to ask, can we figure out what happened here? Which is the whole point of the show, in, in theory. Time for some speculation. 
So again, it's tempting to say, you know, curse you, Chuck Austin, for this terrible comic. He's the obvious target because his name's the first one on it. And he's written a lot of other stuff at this time that, um, you know, people don't like. I'm not going to tell you that he has written anything that I liked. <laughs> but um, I do want to point out that he is a guy who used to get threats online because of his, his writing um, and Obviously, that's never justified, even if you could prove everything bad in this comic came from his brain. But even so, I don't think we can lay everything in the story at his feet. Like I said at the top, it's hard to know who contributed what. This is a storyline that he inherited. And if you recall John Nay Reber's comments from earlier, he inherited it as a result of a creative dispute between Reber and Joe Quesada. And it reads very much like different versions of the same story, stapled together and sort of clumsily covering up the joins. Captain America's Lemurian girlfriend is such a strange idea and so oddly introduced and not really paid off that I feel like there must have been something more there somewhere in somebody's concept. Namor just sort of shows up at the end to explain everything that wasn't clear yet. Um, the interrogator keeling over at the end and saying, like, oh, the real mastermind was Del Rusk the whole time. And it not even being clear in the story that this is referring to a plotline going on in Avengers at this time, where the Red Skull of all people is in disguise as the U.S. Secretary of Defense, hidden behind a pretty goofy anagram, Red Skull, Del Rusk. Henry had this to say about the reveal, which uh, actually might be the first field reporting we've ever had of a sort on Indefensible Inc. He says... In the end, the real villain was the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Del Rusk, which is such an unnatural name, there's no way someone wouldn't hear it and read that or go, that's an anagram. Uh, this was used as a plot point in Jeff Johns' Avengers run. It does basically boil down to Donald Rumsfeld is the Red Skull. It's worth noting that a secretary Dell appeared in Reber's run, The New Deal. I got to ask John Cassidy himself at last year's Comic-Con Revolution Ontario if that guy was always meant to be the Red Skull, or even the same person as Del Rusk in Jeff Johns' Avengers run, and he said no. That is a good spot of a potential connection, and uh, Henry, that's cool that you actually followed up with Cassidy about that, even if he didn't have any uh, juicy details to uh, to impart. I, I didn't notice that on my first read-through, but yeah, it's, it's hard to say what's an accident or coincidence and what's just sort of a slapdash lack of coordination behind the scenes here, but that is a, that is a weird connection there. It's just incredibly clumsy on a storytelling level, and it feels like compromises made to sort of shore up various objections and arguments. This is, I think, genuinely one of the few times in Marvel history where this story could have been published in the form that it was. 10 or 20 years earlier, the way that it messes with Marvel continuity, I think, would have gotten it shot down. I also think it wouldn't pass muster at today's Marvel. And not because it's too controversial or anything like that's a Disney thing that they would lock down. I actually just think that editorial today takes more care about this sort of thing. Like, work out your story ahead of time before you start writing it. The fact is, in the Marvel Knights era, the Joe Quesada, Bill Jameis era at Marvel, it was a time when I think ideas were more important than execution. And partially this is motivated by Marvel and comics in general being in the doldrums at the time and trying to grab people's attentions and rattle some cages. They had almost nothing to lose considering that Marvel practically went out of business just before this. The government froze Captain America is certainly a attention-grabbing story, but there's no follow-through to it at all, really. But um, throughout the Marvel line, Quesada and Jameis took a heavy hand editorially and started making changes about tone and story length and structure. Uh, editor Tom Brevert 
and writer Mark Wade talk in great depth about Bill Jameis making demands about their uh, work on Fantastic Four to the point that Wade and Mike Waringo were kicked off the book before being hastily invited back on after there was some fan outcry. There was really this sense of just like throwing stuff at the walls for quick bursts of attention, but not really committing to anything because this story does get abandoned almost immediately, which you can contrast nicely with the next volume of Captain America, uh, volume five by Brubaker and Epting, which has the Winter Soldier storyline revealing that Bucky was still alive all this time. Um, and again, this is a big, punchy, controversial idea, and it's an idea that I've personally never liked myself. But there was, you know, I think, skill in the execution, and most importantly, they stuck with it. And whatever I think about Bucky being alive all this time, you know, it's clearly paid off in the long run in the comic itself and in movies and, and all that. So, like, I am the one who is, who is in the wrong here. I think more than anything, Captain America Ice is a failure of management, which isn't as spicy as blaming everything on one guy. You know, maybe the next storyline will be a failure of HR or something. Uh, but I read Ice, and it doesn't feel like Secret Wars 2, that kind of situation where, like, it's, you know, the work of a creator with a singular vision, high on hubris, utterly convinced that, you know, like, this is brilliant work, even though to the outside perspective, it's insane in so many ways. Uh, this is an idea that I think somebody got excited about at first, but then they tinkered with it to the point that I don't think that anybody could have been happy with how it turned out. So I, get the, I guess the lesson here is commit to your big swing or plan it up better in the first place, or maybe just don't trust the Murians because nothing that they do makes any sense at all. Well, I think that about wraps it up for Captain America Ice. I'd like to thank Henry for writing in with his suggestion, and to encourage anybody else out there in Radioland to drop me a line if there's something you'd like to hear me cover. I'm clearly a glutton for punishment. The feedback tube is indefensibleinc at gmail.com, on Twitter and Instagram at indefensibleinc. And until next time, which will be a slightly longer break until July 6th because I take the fifth week's off, I'm your host, Justin Zyduck, deeply deeply wounded from this terrible Captain America comic, and uh, I'm going to go put some ice on it. Thanks. Good night.